Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show in which we demonstrate that everything, simply everything you can possibly think of, we really do mean that, has its own history, like hills, turnips and catnip. I don't, I don't think I could do any of those at the moment. Maybe catnip. Catnip, I think, would be the most impossible. But I think we should do knives, wives or hives. <laughs> Lives, drives and clives. Clives is all about my former headmaster. Um, <laughs> hello, hello, Mr. Rolls. Um, how are you? We will be following the links in our minds, however, as we come across them, explaining how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, who knew, Sam, that the history of puddles is in fact all about the history of children at play, the historical derivation of nursery rhymes. Of course, it's about Sir Walter Rawley, the romantic puddle coverer, the famous children's author and illustrator Shirley Hughes. It's also about Cornish mining landscapes. It's about pumping water out of mines to avoid puddles. It's about the Cornish engineer Richard Trevithick. And of course, it's all about the Taj Mahal. Mm. Or... Did you know that the history of falcons is in fact all about medieval and Tudor society? It's from kings to knaves. It's also all about Barry Hines' 1968 novel, A Kestrel for a Knave. And this special episode, which we recorded recently, has a special interview with Paul Manning, the Faulkner at Bewley. So go and check both of those out. Very good stuff. You're probably wondering who's telling you all of this wonderfully fascinating stuff. Uh, I shall introduce you to him now uh, by the means of a poem. Uh, my poem is simply called Daybell. Daybell <laughs> reads you. and Daybell writes. Daybell thinks with all his mights. Daybell changes what we know. Daybell ranges to and fro. Daybell tackles queens and kings. Daybell investigates everyday things. Daybell paints us into the past. Daybell studies the first and the last. It's history from above and history from below. He is an historian, don't you know? He is <laughs> Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. It's James Daybell. Oh, Sam, I love that. I love that. Very good. I'm, I'm, I'm touched. I'm touched that you'd sit down and pen a little ditty for me. Um, but the man not sitting opposite me because we're social distancing in these grim days of lockdown. Well, I'd like to introduce you to him uh, by poems. And I composed a couple of little limericks for you. There was a historian called Sam who opened up the past like a clam. The knowledge he created was carefully dated 
that clever old historian called Sam. <laughs> oh, very good. <laughs> there's another one. There was a maritime scholar called Dr. Sam for whom salty histories were literally jam. Among the archives and papers, he'd devote all his labours. <laughs> that remarkable maritime scholar, Dr. Sam. Very and I've got good. One, oh. one more. A venerable young Willis of my acquaintance <laughs> reconstructed the past with some patience. His research on old crooks formed the basis of books. That venerable young Willis of my acquaintance. <laughs> wow. <laughs> That's amazing. And um, everyone who's listening, this is a, we genuinely didn't know that we were both written poems for each other. No. And, and, and of course, it's the famous historical adventurer, Dr. Sam Willis. Hello. <laughs> what fun. We should do that every time. No, no, no. no. Too much. Too uh, no, much. No, too no, much. no. I'm about all out of poetry. <laughs> right. We're doing rhyming. We're doing we're- rhyming. Um, We're doing rhyming because the last episode, you said, after my little sort of silly little rhymes at the beginning, you said, we should do rhyming. Yeah. And and I took you I took you at your word, uh, and we've done rhyming. Oh, it's been such a good one. It's been classic uh, histories of the unexpected stuff. I hadn't got a clue what I was going to talk about, and um, and I've uncovered all sorts of wonderful things. And In fact, loads and loads of stuff I haven't been able to talk about. Um which is a shame, but um, yeah, rhyming. How what did you? How, how did you go about it? I, I I started by thinking about limericks. I've always been interested in them. Um, I thought about Shakespeare um, and what literary scholars were writing about his rhymes. Um, I, I thought about uh, people writing poetry for a living. Um, the sort of the history of, of basically being a poet as a job. So those were my three starting points, James. What did you? What, Came into yeah, your mind. I, I mean, I've been interested in poetry as a historical source for years. And in fact, when I was an undergraduate at Oxford, I did a paper called Literature and Politics, which is basically 16th and 17th century uh, literature and politics, as, the, as it's, the name says on the tin. And basically, one of the fundamental things at the root of that was how historians use literary texts, lots of them uh, poetic, uh, to examine the past, how they uncover something about the culture in the past. And so, you know, you can think about it from the perspective of, you know, the, the transmission of verse, the meaning of verse. And that's something that I've been you know, deeply interested for a long time. And one of the things I'm going to talk about is a little bit about the transmission of the Petrarchan sonnets. And this is interesting in a couple of ways because you see the movement of poetic forms into the English language for the first time. But also these poetic forms tell you a lot about the culture at the court of Henry VIII and also can be read with a political lens on them. So I'm going to talk about that. Um, I also read a really interesting book last night called The Singing Game by the lovely Opie's um, uh, Iona and Peter Opie, who are these sort of just genius um, people, who scholars of, of of children's folklore, and what they've done is they've tr- they've traced the kinds of rhyming games that we have in the playground nowadays, way way back to sort of the ancient medieval world, and seen how in the nineteenth century they were utterly transformed, um, and and took their place in Victorian playgrounds, uh, completely dissociated from the kinds of context that they were in beforehand. So that's where I'm, that's where I'm sort of, that's where I'm reeling around. But also poetry has become quite a part of my life uh, at the moment. Um, Barry Humphreys on Rick Stein's 
wonderful programme on Cornwall, said that he read a poem every day. Hmm. They were talking about Betjeman. He read a poem every day. And so so I, I, I thought, that's a brilliant thing. I'm so busy, but and I love reading, and I often don't have the time to sit down and read a novel, you know, you know, for hours on end. But actually, a poetry is something you can dip into, and so I have poetry books around me all the time. Oh, thank um, you. And also, a colleague and dear, dear friend of mine, Anthony Callishew, is doing a brilliant uh, poetry and COVID project at the moment. He's got AHRC funding to fund 10 UK-based poets to team up with poets around the world, so in all sorts of countries, so it's a really global project, and the idea is that they will use poetry to reflect on the COVID crisis. Check it out on poetryandcovid.com. There's an opportunity for you to uh, to produce your own poems about the, the historical moment that we're living in. So I think it's an extraordinary project. So those are, that's another sort of framework for thinking about this, the meaning of poetry, the ways in which societies in the past have used the poetic form. Hmm. That sounds fascinating. I shall go and check that out. And he's a poet himself, isn't he? Actually. He is a poet. He's a brilliant yeah. poet himself. Yeah. Um, well, I wanted to... James and I did an episode on the history of nonsense, which I would urge you all to go and listen to. And uh, it allowed me to talk about Edward Lear, who uh, my dad got me into reading when I was a kid. There were Edward Lear books right um, around everywhere. And um, it made me think about his kind of role in the whole invention of the limerick and where he fitted into it. And actually, the history of limericks is really, really interesting. And it's really shrouded in mystery, a lot of it. Um, so Lear is, he wrote his book of nonsense in 1846. Um, and he claims to have got the idea for limericks from a nursery rhyme called There Was an Old Man of Tobago, which uh, I, I, I love discovering this because it, I reckon it was like a challenge to Edward Lear, who could make anything rhyme with anything, that he would have to find something to rhyme with Tobago. <laughs> and um, I wasn't sure how he did it. My immediate thoughts were you could have Fuego, uh, as in a Spanish fire, you could have San Diego or Winnebago. Um, I'm not sure how Lear did it, but this is the original one. that There was an old man of Tobago who lived on rice, gruel and sago, Sago, it's like a powdery starch. Uh, Till much to his bliss, his physician said this, to a leg, sir, of mutton, you may go. Or may go, may go. Uh, Which I I greatly enjoyed um, thinking about how how Lear was inspired to write limericks. And then the more you look into it, the more convoluted the history is, the more you realise there are actually uh, all sorts of different forms of limericks, um, all of different topics. So I just wanted to briefly um, kind of draw your attention to this. Um, There's a very good uh, tongue twister one which I think you might have actually done in our history of tongues, James. I don't know. What, does this ring a bell? A tutor who taught on the flute tried to teach two tutors to toot. Said the tutor the tutor, is it harder to toot or to tutor two tutors to toot? <laughs> I think I did. I think I did touch on it. I touched on so much in that yeah, episode. Yeah. Um, anyway, um, so the, the earliest written evidence is, um, is interesting, but there's a bit of a problem with the history of limericks full stop. And that is, is this. This has been summed up by um, a guy called George Belknap, who wrote, wrote an article called The History of the Limerick in 1981. It's published by the University of Chicago Press on behalf of the Bi- uh, Bibliographical Society of America. 
And he says that the study of the limerick has been muddled by the fact that much of the literature itself is infected by what I must call a whimsical wish to find a history as absurd as the form itself. And then another quote here from a historian, uh, Gershon Legman, um, who says, almost nothing that has been written about the limerick can be taken seriously, which is perhaps only fitting. Uh, I, I love that idea about having a ridiculous history just because it's um, it's appropriate to the subject matter. Uh, but one thing we do know is the the hardest, the earliest um, written evidence, and it appears in something called the Cantab, which is a kind of journal that's published weekly during school terms by Cambridge University students. And in the 6th of October, 1898, it was announced, this is the first time the word limerick appears in, in print. It um, uh, announces that illustrated nonsense verses feature will feature a regular, um, a regular feature of the cantab, and then they use the word in October and November and December of that year, referring to the um, the nonsense verses which have all been submitted. And it rather tails off. So it starts off with students being quite interested in sending some in. And then it, they stop. But then they have an extraordinary coup and they manage to get Rudyard Kipling to uh, to send in a letter. So he, he writes one. And this is in September of um, 1898. So he, I love the idea of these students, probably 20 year olds, trying to hook a famous um, writer for their journal. And it, and it works brilliantly because Kipling writes them a letter. To the editor, there once was a writer who wrote, Dear Sir, in reply to your note of yesterday's date, I'm sorry to state it's no good at the prices you quote. So rather brilliantly, Kipling both refused to enter a limerick because he wasn't being paid enough money, but also he uh, entered a limerick, <laughs> which is brilliant. <laughs> and so, so, so good for Kipling. Um, they are um, uh, just a fabulous things. So you can look into into the histories of them and there are different uh different types of limerick um which i wanted to draw your attention to very briefly a lot of them are very crude they're almost uh, pornographic some of them um this is a, a sort of a bawdier one there was a young girl of west lynn brought up on original sin who when told to be good said she would if she could and straightway went at it again uh there's another entire um, form of limerick called the sick limerick, which is really interesting. And I'd like to learn much more about this. And this is all to do with people suffering from illnesses and in particularly disabilities. Um, and this became um, became a real uh, sort of strand of limericks in the early 20th century. To his club-footed child, said Lord Stipple, as he poured his postprandial tipple, your mother's behaviour gave pain to our saviour, and that's why he made you a cripple. And that is one of um, so, so many which look at all sorts of interesting themes. But the point is, there's a huge variety here. We've got gluttony, vomit, bad teeth, false teeth, tooth pulling, lots of teeth stuff there. Physical deformities, cross eyes, ugly women, stuttering, vermin, miscegenation, violence and violent death, human beings being eaten by animals and cannibalism itself. So there you are, just a brief little history of the limerick. And it allows me to also tell you my favourite ever limerick, James. Uh, and I love it for its nonsense-ness. Uh, it, it's very, very clever because the whole thing... Well, let me just tell you, tell you it. There was a young man from St Bees who was stung on the arm by a wasp. When asked, does it hurt? He said, no, it doesn't. I was lucky it wasn't a hornet. <laughs> <laughs> 
so there we are. There's a bit it of doesn't work at all. There's a bit of genius uh, by deliberately not rhyming, but scanning beautifully. <laughs> it's fantastic. So yeah, a bit of um, be aware, everyone. There's a wonderful history of limericks, and um, we're still trying to get to the bottom of them. That's such a treasure trove of cultural and social history there, Sam, mm-hmm. all packed up in it, and it seamlessly segues us into what I'm going to talk about. Um, which is this book, The Singing Game, uh, by Iona and Peter Opie. And as I was saying earlier on, what it does is it traces the roots of the kinds of singing games that children nowadays play in the playground. You know, and you'll, you listen to the kinds of words that they're using, and they're often incredibly old-fashioned historical traditions that are long lost. And I'll just give you an example. This is the opening of the book, and it describes how uh, children, a child, a small cockney child um, in Coram Fields in Bloomsbury, singing this on a hot summer's day in July 1974 with her cousin. And it was a, ga- a game, singing game she'd just learnt. There's a lady on the mountain, who she is I do not know, All she wants is gold and silver. All she wants is a nice young man. Open the gates and let me through so I can show you black and blue. So open the gates and let me through. Kneel down, Lord. Kiss the ground, Lord. Stand up, Lord. Open the gates and let me through. Now I can show you black and blue. Here's my black and here's my blue. So open the gates and let me through. I mean, this is something that transports you to another time, back into a sort of medieval world of chivalry and courtship rituals that is so far removed from, you know, this part of London in the early 1970s. And so what the book is all about is about how... Culturally, how do these rhymes transmit through history? And what it does is it starts with this as its starting place, and then it looks at all the different places that we can find examples of ritual dancing and singing. And it goes back to the ancient world, and it starts with a a scene from Homer in in the Iliad, uh, and it's a, a scene which sees people dancing on the floor and adorning um, Achilles' shield. A dancing floor like that one that Daedalus designed in the spacious town of Knossos in Ariadne of the lovely locks. Youths and marriageable maidens were dancing on it with their hands on one another's wrists, the girls in fine linen with lovely garlands on their heads, and the men in closely woven tunics showing the faint gleam of oil, and with daggers of gold hanging from their silver belts. Here they ran lightly round, circling as smoothly on their accomplished feet as the wheel of a potter when he sits and works it with his hands to see if it will spin. And there they ran in lines to meet each other. So we've got this sort of depiction here of a a sort of dance involving song in the ancient world. And then it gets traced through to the medieval world and the medieval carol and various traditions there associated with dancing across Europe, around the world. And there are various depictions of people dancing. So we've got pictures from a 15th century Book of Hours, shepherds caroling and their dance leader standing outside the ring. So that all these sort of singing games have these sort of real, you know, long-lived traditions. And then when we move into the later Middle Ages and into the 16th century, we have courtship dances that were part and parcel of 
courtship rituals. Uh, and there's an example here from uh, a Dutch manuscript around um, around 1400, uh, which talks about the theme of a girl sort of reluctant to give uh, uh, flowers to a young man. In a bower where I came, did I find fair flowerlets stand? There I gathered for my love of violets this garland. Does it suit me well? Do I wear it well? How do you like it? Young maiden, that garland doth suit you well, most overchaste, slender, fair one. Give me that garland, then thou dost well. Give me that garland. So we've got this this very sort of popular tradition in the medieval period through into the sort of pre-Reformation period. And then what happens is ecclesiastical traditions and attitudes turn against this kind of this kind of singing and this is certainly the argument that they make and they put a great store by the condemnation of it um, by by puritans and their sort of attitudes to dancing and it falls out of fashion and then what they argue is that there is a romantic revival the late 18th century and into the 19th century. And a lot of this is is philanthropic. It's about a, a concern with the children of the working classes that they don't know how to play. And what we see is singing games introduced into the playgrounds. So actually to encourage children to learn, you know, what to do. There's a an article in the Church Reformer uh, dated June 1894 by the Reverend Stuart Headlam. Benevolent West End ladies who have not yet recognised that their main duty towards the poor is to see that all unauthorised people get off their backs have once or twice lamented to me that poor children do not know how to play. So being in a school in the poorest part of Hoxton, talking to the girls about temperance, I asked them what games were then in season. I had a chorus of answers, and not being able altogether to understand the descriptions, they wisely suggested an object lesson in the playground after school, which resulted in my introduction to the following seven games. And then he goes on to describe all of these games that... that um, that children were playing in the playground. And the book is incredibly rich and detailed. After this chapter, this big sort of expansive opening chapter that looks at the, the history and transmission of this form of singing game, we then have what is basically a taxonomy, rather like you did with the limericks. You've got a taxonomy of all the different forms of songs. They've got almost 140 of these songs which are which are thematic. So they're organized in 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 the following themes, chains and captives. This is basically where children would would follow each other in a line, um, you know, chanting songs, dancing around, and then they would there would certain elements of the dance where they would catch each other. There's then matchmaking, which is sort of the and mating and wedding rings. These are the three different sort of themes here. And these are all to do with the kinds of of songs and dances that are connected to the, the courtship rituals and the marriage rituals that we were talking about earlier on. There are cushion dances. There are long ways for as many as will. The downfall of the ring. There are witch dances, dramas, contests, mimicry, bachelor games, calls of friendship, up against the wall, static circles, eccentric circles, buffoonery, impersonations and dance routines, clapping, so sort of clapping games, static circles... 
Um, so and so it goes on. But I, I thought that that you might like to be introduced to the category of buffoonery, and I wanted to end sharing uh, one little uh, song dance with you, which is called Flea Fly Flow. Um, there is a, a musical score to it, but I, I have no musical uh, literacy at all. Um, and it's a it's a sort of gibberish song that's sung by scouts and guides in in Britain uh, and also in the United States in in summer camps. And it's quite it was very popular during the nineteen seventies. Um, and a there, I think in the past we've talked about how the Opies use a lot of oral history. Um, to have a look at the the meaning and inheritance as it as it resides within children, uh, and there's a, an oral history of a ten year old uh, living in Salford who explained in November uh, 1970 the following: There's this game called Flea Fly Flow. It's the strangest game I ever played. There's one person in the middle, and whatever she says, the others in the circle repeat. She sits down cross-legged with the others sitting round her and begins by saying, flea fly. Flea fly, they repeat. Flea fly flow, she says. Flea fly flow, Vesta Vesta. She sings, Esther Mella Fella Mella. Ua a Fella Mella. They copy, Esther Mella Fella Mella. Ua a Fella Mella. <laughs> she sings, oh, no, 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 Esther. And they sing it after her. Then they all sing together. Bobo be dittenda, Bobo be dittenda, Bobo be dittenda. Shh! And the one in the middle keeps crossing and uncrossing her hands and taps on her knees in time to the rhythm. And then she picks another person. And that person goes in the middle and they do it again. <coughs> so there we are. Um, the <laughs> remarkable transition of rhyming forms accompanied by dance that move from the ancient world through the medieval world that are transformed in various ways are part of a sort of um, philanthropic, pedagogical, social control mission in the Victorian period in Britain and now end up being sung by our children in the school playground to this very day. Wow! Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. That was excellent. <laughs> <laughs> it, 
Uh, it's quite fun. What you should, I'll, I'll lend you the book. Some, it's some excellent. Some of, <laughs> ironically, some of what you say, James, I never understand anyway. So when you were just kind of talking gibberish like that, it was it's literally what kind of goes into my ears sometimes. <laughs> yes, I mean, it normally is. I normally talk in sort of double Dutch. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We pulled off the biggest blag ever by doing a podcast where we could actually make no sense and people will still listen to us. Hello, everyone. I hope you're enjoying Hello. it. Hello. Um, <laughs> speak backwards. I, I found that, yeah, we should do that. Let's do the history of backwards. Let's do that next, because I've, <laughs> I've always wanted to do one on walking backwards. There's a really interesting okay. history of it. Okay. Um, uh, I came across this quote by Gertrude Stein. Um, she was an American novelist, poet, playwright, an art collector, uh, lived from 1874 to 1946. And it was there I first saw the shaving advertisements that delighted me one little piece on one board and then further on two more words and then further on two more words a whole lively poem I wish I could remember more of them they were all lively and pleasing I wish I could remember them I liked them so much uh, this piqued my interest what on earth is going on here and I found this wonderful history of uh, advertising along the sides of American roads in the first quarter, first third of the 20th century. And the sense that the roads themselves were kind of for browsing as much as they were for driving. Um, and there was a big series of, of poems, particularly put up by one company called Burma Shave. They were funny. They were often with puns in them. They often referred to highway safety as well as the shaving foam that they were trying to sell. And they've become um, a sort of a powerful source of nostalgia for Americans of of, of an age who, who can actually remember. I'm not sure that really applies anymore in the 20, in 2021, but certainly it's um, it's something which which um, is linked with real um, early 20th century Americana. So we've got this company called Burma Shave. They they're selling brushless shaving cream, and they want to to find a way of getting everyone to to buy their stuff. And they start off by advertising along the roads. Uh, 1927. Sh this is their first one. Shave the modern way. No brush. No lather. No rubbin. Big tube. 35 cents. Pretty boring. Okay. Um, but what they've got is this idea of having the first line shave the modern way on a board and then 100 yards down the road you've got another one saying no brush and then further on you've got another one saying no lather two years later someone there um the owner possibly his son the owner was clinton possibly his son odell realized that they could do it with po poems and um that means that, that they they start becoming much much more entertaining Half a pound for half a dollar spread on thin above the collar. And then they go on. There are, just say, I'm, I'm browsing through this. There are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them. Shaving brushes, you'll soon see them on the shelf in some museum. Remember, uh, that really encapsulates what they're trying to do here. This is, this is shaving foam that doesn't need a brush. The 50 cent jar, so large by heck, even the scotch now shave the neck, which is really good. A uh, bit of gibberish here. Um, uh, hinky dinky parley voo, cheer up the face, the war is through. Uh, so that is uh, the after the, um, the, the, well, it's a, the gaps between the First World War and the Second World War. So this allows us to think about all sorts of interesting things, not only the way that uh, roads were used and experienced, but also about the popularity of 
um, of rhyming, of poetry, of advertising. Um, the, the, we know that at the height of this campaign, you've got 7,000 sets of signs using 600 individual poems. They're maintained in 44 states and they were seen by untold numbers. Um, in 1933, this is a newsletter by the Burma Shave Company. Um, they boasted that over 5 million men read Burma Shave signs every day in 38 states. And it's quite possible, historians believe, that throughout the 1920s, the Depression, Second World War and the 1950s, Burma Shave poems were the most publicly wide, public, widely read verse in America, which I think is astonishing. It makes you realise how popular poetry was at the time. And it made me think, my, my, my granny um, wrote short stories. She also wrote poems. She got them published. She made a few quid doing it. And um, you realise that there is a, a fascinating history of people making money by writing poetry at this time. Um, and you can look into there's a whole history of it. Um, people making more than a, a decent living participating in, in full or even part-time writing. I've got one example here, Anne Campbell. She reportedly earned $10,000 a year off the poems that she wrote just for the Detroit News. And that's the equivalent of $150,000 today. Um, and then Edgar Guest... Uh, he's writing the Detroit Free Press, is making five or ten times that amount um, with all of his poems going in books and also on radio. So there's a really large amount of money going on. Um, and I think one of the interesting things here is that, that uh, so Alan Odell, actually, the name of the son, is writing the poems. This is the son of the, the guy who owns the company for Burma Shave. He, he gets he runs out of juice. He can't get think of any more. And he, in 1947, hires some very famous poets to help him out, but they ask for too much money. So he gets into some crowdsourcing. It all feels very contemporary, this. He starts a jingle writing contest. He offers $100 for every submission that the company chose. And it proved hugely, hugely popular. It's the kind of thing you can see really working on Twitter. And sometimes you'd get 50,000 entries in a single year. Um, just to meet the company's copy needs. And some people were sending in upwards of 500 jingles in a single package just to try and make that little prize. So there you are, James. Just a bit of a history of roadsides in America in the first quarter of the 20th century. And also uh, just uh, a bit thinking about how you can uh, make money in the past by writing poems. Oh, very good. Very good. Um, a very interesting uh, question uh, in A Room of One's Own by Virginia Woolf about how women were often excluded throughout history from professional writing. In other words, writing for writing for a living. Um, so I, I point you all in that direction. But what I'm going to end with now is I'm going to talk about the transmission of the Petrarchan sonnet and Sir Thomas Wyatt. Uh, and this may sound very sort of highfalutin and all, but actually it's it's fascinating because it's connected to discussions about the culture at Henry VIII's court. It's about the transmission of Renaissance culture from Italy into England in the early 16th century. And it's also really crucial for thinking about the development of the English sonnet as a poetic form. And I think another thing that I think it brings up is also our ability to read poetry historically. So to actually sort of forensically pull it apart, look for historical allusions in it. I mean, you know, that, that doesn't always work, 
Um, but I think it's a very interesting way of thinking about this. So Petrarch, to sort of start with him, is a, a 14th century uh, humanist. He's an Italian scholar. Um, and he's one of the sort of founding fathers of the Italian Renaissance. He, for example, discovered, uh, rediscovered Cicero's letters, which sort of ignited um, the 14th century Italian Renaissance and led to sort of later, later influences. And his his poetic form, uh, the 14-line the poem, the sonnet, gets picked up uh, by Sir Thomas Wyatt. Sir Thomas Wyatt and Henry Howard, Earl of Surrey, in the early 16th century. Now, Wyatt had been travelling in Italy. He's a government uh, minister. He's a diplomat. He's one of um, Thomas Cromwell's sort of, um, you know, leading supporters. Cromwell was his patron. So when Cromwell falls from power uh, and is executed, um, uh, Wyatt, who'd been on diplomatic missions, was was pulled home and was arrested and put in prison. But what I'm interested in here is what happens when this sonnet form comes across. Now, the standard Petrarchan sonnet divides the 14 lines into two different sections. So there's a an eight-line stanza, which has, in terms of rhyming, if you're looking at it sort of technically, it, it goes A, B, B, A, A, B, B, A. In other words, Abba, Abba, uh, for those of you who are into your, uh, your pop. Um, and then there is a six-line stanza, uh, which, which rhyming, um, C, D, C, D, C, D, or alternatively, C, D, E, C, D, E. Now, Wyatt and Surrey take this, uh, this form and change it and they develop what becomes known as the Shakespearean sonnet, which condenses the 14 lines, not into these two separate stanzas, but into one stanza of three quatrains and a, a concluding couplet. Um, so basically you have... You have uh, you have sections of that work in fours, three sections that work in fours, and then a concluding couplet, and they rhyme like this: A B A B C D C D E F E F G G. And I'll give you an example of this. One of the sort of famous, most famous examples of this is a a poem called the Pira, Pillar Perished, um, which was written. Uh, and thought by Wyatt and thought to have been inspired by the death of his patron, uh, Thomas Cromwell. And what's interesting, if we are just trying to decode the kind of poetry that is being produced in the Henrician court, there are all sorts of very visceral, violent, dark images um, that I think come out of a, cult a court culture that is... That is really faction-riven, uh, you know, and people really can't trust each other. Uh, it's a very sort of bloody and violent world in which to operate. But I'm just going to read you this. The pillar perished is whereto I lent the strongest stay of my unquiet mind. The like of it no man again can find from east to west, still seeking though he went to mine unhap, for hap away hath rent of all my joy, the very bark and rind, and I, alas, by chance am thus assigned, daily to mourn till death do it relent. But since that thus it is by destiny, 
What can I more but have a woeful heart? My pen in plaint, my voice in careful cry, my mind in woe, my body full of smart, and I myself, myself always to hate, till dreadful death do ease my doleful state. It's a beautiful poem, and the, the rhyme scheme, you know, is is stunning in that. I want to move now to another poem, uh, which is called Whoso List to Hunt, which is a poem that's often associated with Anne Boleyn. I think what's really interesting here is what Wyatt does. When we talk about the transmission of a Petrarchan sonnet, what he's effectively doing is translating it out of the out of the Italian into English. And what's interesting for historians is looking at when that translation is done, how does the how does how do the changes in the poem read in a political sense? And I'm just going to give you a translation of Petrarch's original sonnet. This is sonnet uh, 190. A white doe on the green grass appeared to me with two golden horns between two rivers in the shade of a laurel when the sun was rising in an unripe, se unripe season. Her look was so sweet and proud that to follow her I left every task like the miser who, as he seeks treasure, sweetens his trouble with delight. Let no one touch me, she bore, written with diamonds and topazes around her lovely neck. It has pleased my Caesar to make me free. And the sun had already turned at midday. My eyes were tired by looking but not sated when I fell into the water and she disappeared. So effectively what you've got is a, you've got a white doe, a female deer being followed through this sort of pastoral forest. You know, the sun is golden. Um, you know, Caesar has made her free. And and the, the person who's trying to sort of follow her is unable to keep up and, and she goes off. What happens with this is it gets transformed in Wyatt's translation. And it becomes, rather than a pastoral scene, it becomes a hunt. And so what we have is all the visceral, violent imagery of a hunt instead of something that is that is tranquil and peaceful and calm. Whoso list to hunt, I know where is and hind. But as for me, alas, I may no more. The vain travel hath wearied me so sore. I am of them that farthest cometh behind, yet may I by no means my weary mind draw from the deer, but as she fleeth afore, fainting I follow, I leave off therefore, sithence in a net, I seek to hold the wind, who list her hunt, I put him out of doubt, as well as I may spend his time in vain, and graven with diamonds in letters plain, there is written her fair neck round about, nulle me tangere, for Caesar's I am, and wild for to hold, though I seem tame. Now, read poetically, what we have is the sense in which what Wyatt is doing here is establishing a poetic form. He's practising as a Renaissance humanist poet, and it is something that is, you know, imbibing a deep, culture, high culture, into the Henrician court. Read with a political lens on, 
as I said earlier on, you know, we've got something that is that is very sort of violent and dark. The deer has completely changed into into something that is wild, that may seem innocent and fair, may seem tame, but in fact is wild. And playing that game, that game of romantic courtly love with with uh, Anne Boleyn, as many of those courtiers did, was a very dangerous game that when Anne Boleyn fell from favour and was executed, so Henry culled a whole faction of people at court who were who were connected to her. And this this poetic form, this this sonnet feeds into um feeds into later generations. It's the form that that Shakespeare used. We also see it cropping up in the First World War. And I just want to end with a final poem uh, by Wilfred Owen, which is not Dulce et Decorum Est, which we've looked at before. For me, um, Wilfred Owen is a, is a, is a two-poem poet. Uh, I got the complete works the other day and read through it, and and um, and I, which I hadn't done before. And a lot of the poetry is actually quite sort of, you know, mundane and pedestrian. And there are a couple of gems in it. And the other one is the anthem for doomed youth, which I think a lot of the a lot of the clever bits in it, the title and and patient minds in line thirteen, were in fact suggestions by another celebrated World War One poet, Siegfried Sassoon, who he met in a Scottish hospital uh, when he was injured on the front. What passing bells for these who die as cattle? Only the monstrous anger of the guns. Only the stuttering rifle's rapid rattle can patter out their nasty origins. No mockeries now for them, no prayers, nor bells, nor any voice of mourning save the choirs, the shrill demented choirs of wailing shells and bugles calling for them from sad shires. What candles may be held to speed them all, not in the hands of boys, but in their eyes, shall shine the holy glimmers of goodbyes. The pallor of girls' brows shall be their pall. Their flowers the tenderness of patient minds, and each slow dusk a drawing down of blinds. It's a, such a brilliant, tender poem that, you know, that describes the horror of war there and i think culturally what's fascinating is the way that we have echoes of the italian renaissance all the way from petrarch going down the centuries and cropping up in poetic form to describe the horrors of world war 1 so there we are sam i think both of my 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 examples this week have been about the transmission of poetry, which wasn't my intention, to be honest. Uh, but it, but um, I think rhyming. I think we should do another episode on rhyming. There's so much more, Sam. <laughs> we may well come back to do some more on rhyming, guys. I hope you've enjoyed that. I very much did. Uh, do please follow me on social media. I'm at Dr. Sam Willis. And if you're interested in maritime and naval history, please check out my other podcast, the Mariner's Mirror Podcast. And you can follow me on Twitter at James Daybell. You can follow the podcast uh, all over social media. You can follow us on Twitter uh, at Unexpected Pod. You can follow us on Instagram and also on Facebook. And you should also check out our all singing and dancing website, historiesoftheunexpected.com. That's it for now, guys. We'll be back with you soon. Bye. Bye, guys.
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.